You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience on this last day in July. And it is Daniel Hurwitz time again. Yes, I'm here Tuesday afternoon. Um, I know I wasn't planning on putting out another show until tomorrow. But so many things have have gone on. You know, this week started off very, very slowly, and then rapidly intensified. Really, you know, Monday afternoon, so much going on. You know, I did a show yesterday, put out an article on about ten different insane court cases on cons- consequential issues um, that will you know will determine fiscal policies, national security, border policy, obviously our culture, religious liberty. And, you know, since then, people have been sending me notes. Oh, here's another one. Here's another one. And indeed, I wanted to talk about some of those. And I want to tie it into one of the big issues we're seeing in the courts, religious liberty. Religious liberty. And tying to the general notion of how the only truly religious people around nowadays are the left. They are very religious. They speak to the morality of their immoral views and policies, yet our side will not speak to the morality of our supposed morality. I'm watching this Senate hearing on separation of families, not focused on the drugs and the cartels and the criminal aliens. And We have a new article out at Conservative Review with new, brand new data from Maryland, one of the hardest hit states from the drug crisis, demonstrating once again our thesis that this is all a UAC border surge sanctuary city driven illicit drug crisis, not a prescription drug crisis. And this should be a national emergency, yet nobody is pounding the lectern about these issues. Nobody. So I felt we left a lot more on the table. There's a lot more going on. And then obviously there are updates with this so-called budget battle. As we warned yesterday, this uh, uh, tough talk from the president that you know he's finally going to get serious about putting his immigration priorities in the budget and vetoing any bill that doesn't do that. Well, as we predicted, it didn't really last for too long, unfortunately. Um, at least as John Cornyn, uh, number two ranking Senate Republican, is, uh, is reporting that Trump agreed to push it off until after the election. The next time, the next time. So there's a lot of that going on. But speaking of religious liberty, I wanted to bring on a special guest. Uh, DOJ reached out to me, um, asked me if we'd have Beth Williams on, an assistant attorney general, to discuss religious liberty. And uh, I really want you to, to hear this interview. And that's why I felt the need to put out a separate show just, just today – um, because not every day that we actually have someone from the government updating us on really one of the most vital issues. You know, speaking of religious liberty, just weeks after signing the Declaration of Independence, Sam Adams, one of the greatest founders, he framed the impending war with England as follows. 
very interesting. In a speech before the Pennsylvania legislature, this was, again, in between his signing of the declaration and the war itself. Quote, our contest is not only whether we ourselves shall be free, but whether there shall be left to mankind an asylum on earth for civil and religious liberty. Now, that's how foundational it was to the founding of our country that he framed the impending war with England and, and its consequences and outcome based on whether there will be an asylum left for mankind uh, that will respect religious liberty. Um, obviously, in recent years, we've seen religious liberty flipped on its head, upside down, inside out. I have a right to your property, but you don't have a right to your property in conscience. Um, you know, Anyone halfway around the world now could assert a First Amendment religious liberty right to immigrate, but an American citizen living here doesn't have conscience rights with his property, according to a lot of courts and a lot of state governments. Um, to that end, yesterday there was a pretty big announcement. Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced the creation of a DOJ task force on religious liberty, helping him with this endeavor, at least as a co-chair, is Assistant Attorney General Beth Williams, who joins us today. Um, Beth Williams, after graduating from Harvard, she went on to uh, clerk for Judge Richard Wesley of the United States Appeals Court for the Second Circuit. She also served as special counsel for the Senate Judiciary Committee, helping to get through Bush's Supreme Court nominees. And she also worked in private practice dealing with complex First Amendment issues. Obviously, now she works um, in DOJ after being nominated by President Trump. Um, she is Assistant Attorney General for the Justice Department's Office of Legal Policy. Very consequential, deals with a lot of issues. So really runs the gambit of all three branches of government. Um, and it is an honor to be joined today by Beth Williams. Hey, Beth, how are you? Good, Daniel. It's really great to be here. Well, this sounds like a pretty big announcement, especially in light of the culture we've seen in the federal government over the last, uh, you know, eight years or so under the previous administration. Could you explain a little bit what um, the mission of this task force is going to be and what you see as the biggest threats to religious liberty that you're going to need to combat um, inside of DOJ? Sure. So the attorney general is really um, the passion and the driving force behind this task force. He believes very strongly that we need to be defending religious liberty because religious liberty is not a policy preference. It's a fundamental right. And he believes it's not merely a right to personal religious beliefs or even to just worship personally in a sacred place. It also encompasses religious observance and practice. And, um, you know, I think that in the in over the last you know, several decades, we've seen religious liberty protections um, fall by the wayside a little bit or not be prioritized as much as they need to be. You know, one of the things that the attorney general likes to say is that religious liberty is really our first freedom, because as you as you so aptly put it with regard to the founders, um, this is it's actually the very first freedom that's protected in the Bill of Rights. So that just underscores how important it was to the founding of our country. No, sure. And, you know, Madison called uh, conscience the most sacred of property rights. Um, Justice Story said the rights of conscience are indeed beyond the reach of any human power. Um, and, and that would include even a state government. Um, one of the concerns we're seeing now that I think is probably the first place to start from 
is what I call the don't tase me bro scenario where, you know, religious people aren't asking for anything. They're not even asking for equal access to certain government services. Just don't force me with my private property to violate my conscience, particularly on issues such as marriage that are deeply rooted in history and tradition. Um, the, the legal term of art used by the courts to define a fundamental right. Um, yet we're seeing, even after the masterpiece cakes decision that, that a lot of people thought would quell this burning fire, um, a number of state courts or lower federal courts are actually citing it um, to say that, no, in most cases, bake the darn cake, you must uh, service something against your conscience. Um, I saw last week that the Third Circuit out of Philadelphia um, mandated that uh, private Catholic adoption groups must uh, deliver uh, children into the hands of same-sex couples. They cannot choose not to participate in that. What role do you think DOJ is going to have in protecting the rights of conscience, particularly when it runs up against this sexual identity movement, the gay marriage movement, um, which is very, very strong politically in this country? Yeah, that's I mean, that's a really good question. And I think that was one of the reasons the task force is created is it's really it's a two two goals. One is a litigation goal, like what how in litigation can we protect freedom of religion? Um, and that may be, you know, from anywhere from um, going after people who commit hate crimes against persons, you know, persons of faith. Um, just recently, we, the Civil Rights Division, um, prosecuted a Texas man who was who had burned down a mosque. Um, so it's whether you know we're prosecuting hate crimes against religious people or whether we're pursuing you know policy objectives and and legislation. Uh, it's really got a dual track role. But I think that you know some of the Critics of religious liberty and of the task force seek to set it up that any time people are expressing their faith, somebody must have to suffer. That if you can't have religious people and if you have religious people, then they must be anti-gay. And that's just really not the case. There are a lot of people of deep faith who just want to be allowed to practice their faith without, you know, certainly impinging on anyone else. So, I mean, part of part of my concern is you, know, you mentioned litigation, and I guess I'd call that legal offense, going on offense on behalf of um, those that are discriminated against because of their religious beliefs. But I'm seeing the courts used as a sword um, as well. Uh, you know, just uh, last year, again in Pennsylvania, a federal district judge said that the Trump administration must continue the contraception mandate of the Obama administration, you know, again, part of this growing trend of court saying the Trump administration must continue discretionary policies of the previous administration. And I thought we had a Hobby Lobby case. I thought we had a victory at the Supreme <laughs> Court. And yet somehow this death by a thousand lower court lawsuits keeps coming back. Where does where does that stand with the contraception mandate? And, and you know, what is DOJ's involvement? Well, you 
raise you raise a great point in that there's so much focus often um, on the Supreme Court, but the lower courts play a huge role here. And you know, one of the other things that that my office does is it helps with the confirmation of judges. And I think recently, you know, you saw one of our judges who had her hearing. She had a deep Catholic faith, and they. The, one of the senators said, well, because she's Catholic, the dogma lives loudly within you. And that that type of phrasing, that type of sentiment is something that should really concern all of us, because what it suggests is that people of faith can't act neutrally and can't put their put that aside and rule according to the law. And I think it's comments like that that really are concerning um, people of faith, and they should be concerning. Sure, sure. I mean, and, and that's that's the thing. I mean, I could say this as someone of the Jewish faith in a majority Christian country. I've never in my life been compelled to violate the way I worship because of Christians. I mean, they're not forcing anything on anyone. But to the contrary, it's you could call it under the ACLU, the radical secularist, the other side that is saying with your private property, you must um, service something you don't believe in. Uh, you know, a lot of people on the other side accuse Christians of violating the Establishment Clause just simply by practicing their religion publicly. But you know, Madison – I always like to quote Madison from um, the debate over the First Amendment itself in August 20th, 1789. He said, Congress should not establish a religion and enforce the legal observation of it by law nor compel men to worship God in any manner contrary to their conscience. I don't see Christians anywhere in America compelling anyone to worship God or not worship him or worship in any way. I see other people compelling private business owners to violate their conscience. How do you think we could strengthen um, you know, the victories we thought we got in Hobby Lobby and Masterpiece – in light of some of what we're seeing in the lower courts. Yeah, I, I totally understand your point. I mean, I think the, the point here is that nobody should be favoring non-religion over religion. That in of itself is a problem if you're doing that, because then you're favoring certain people over others. There's, you know, all everyone should be treated equally with regard to religious liberty, whether you have a, a faith in God or whether you don't. And, and I think the important point that the attorney general wants, wanted, has wanted to get across for the Department of Justice is that except in the narrowest circumstances, no one should be forced to choose between living out his or her faith and complying with the law. And I think you've seen that in some of the cases that you've mentioned. Sure. And obviously, you know, we're not talking about some of the major things at the time of the founding, obviously, with the Quakers and, and the draft and serving in the military. You know, these are big national issues. It, it's pretty absurd to say that there is a, you know, a national imperative to force every business owner to cover every, you know, panoply of, of con- contraception, abortifacient or or, you know, service every um, sort of gay event. It, it just it's just kind of kind of ridiculous um, to say that that would be the national interest. But I'm seeing what's concerning me is that um, you you work at DOJ but we see the EOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which is often kind of viewed as almost you know, an independent commission, and they seem to be codifying what they call sex stereotyping um, 
into Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, we're seeing they they have made it their policy to codify transgenderism into Title IX of the Education Amendments. And again, the Third Circuit, I keep getting back to that, last week they, they seem to indicate that as well. Isn't that necessarily a problem that once you say um, that certain identities are codified into civil rights law, that would necessarily force Catholics or any other religious group to violate their conscience and service any of their events with their private businesses. Yeah, well, I, like you said, I you know I can't speak for the EEOC because I'm I work at DOJ, but you know, you know one of the best ways to clear up the law is for Congress to act. You know where there's lack of clarity in the law, where DOJ and EEOC are taking two different positions. Um, there's an easy way to fix that, and that's for Congress to actually clarify what they meant to the extent that it's ambiguous. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, and unfortunately, a lot of these lower courts are, are making a lot of uh, pretty unambiguous statutes ambiguous. So there's a lot of chasing our tail there. I know your time is short. Um, just wanted to you know, clarify a little bit headed forward in, with, with, with this commission. Just what are some of the, the other goals you're looking at, um, some of the other brush fires you're seeing against religious liberty that need to be addressed or possibly through legislation as well? Right. Well, one of the other cases um, right now that the Department of Justice is involved in, and you may be aware of this, um, the department recently filed an amicus brief um, supporting reversal of the D.C. District Court's decision um, that denied the Archdiocese of Washington's motion for a preliminary injunction against the Washington Area Metropolitan Transit Authority. And so in that case, um, the Archdiocese wanted to put up a very, you know, a pretty bland advertisement, quite honestly, that said, find the perfect gift at Christmas time. And the, the Metro said that they couldn't do that um, because it, that was an effort of seeking to promote religion and they didn't allow any ads that sought to promote religion. And so, you know, the Department of Justice filed an amicus brief supporting the Archdiocese in that case. That's the type of First Amendment free speech case that I think, you know, is a, is a great example of where the department can make a difference. Um, but other things that we're doing, you know, the task force has five goals. One is to facilitate department component compliance um, with the attorney general's memoranda. And that's just making sure that the department within ourselves and also interagency other agencies are respecting the law that currently exists with regard to freedom of religion and religious liberty, the role of um, the ability of employees to freely practice and observe their religions. Um, and then the, another thing is to develop new strategies. And that may involve litigation, policy, or legislation that protect and promote religious liberty. So, um, you know, we're, we're looking at several things, and I'm happy to say the department has already been taking steps uh, toward those ends. Well, I mean, late breaking, you, you might have to deal with this. I look forward to seeing what your office puts out, but it looks like the D.C. Federal Court of Appeals just sided with the district judge and, and uh, said that the, the uh, D.C. Transit can indeed block those ads. Um, it is a government agency. It's overseen by um, the Federal Transit uh, Association, as well as kind of a mixture of Virginia and Maryland state government. So again, it's kind of interesting how some suggest that individual private property owners, private business owners can't deny service, but a government agency, I guess, can. 
um, kind of backwards there, but uh, I, I know you yeah. haven't seen the opinion yet. I, I actually haven't read it too. I'm just reading here from from the media. But um, I, anyway, I know I know your your time is short, but at some point, I'd love to get you back to discuss some of your other work on immigration and the drug crisis and and things like that. Certainly, a very busy time at DOJ. Yeah, well, I'm eager to read that opinion, and I'm sure I'm sure we'll be considering all all options once we take a look at it. But thanks a lot, Daniel. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Good luck with everything. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Beth Williams. Was nice enough to join us today, and uh, she is, you know a Senate confirmed position. It's not just, um, just to make it clear, it's not just this DOG, DOG task force on religious liberty. That's her separate, um, endeavor that the attorney general just created. Um, she is the assistant attorney general for the office of legal policy. So, you know, at some point I'd love to have her back on to just discuss some of the other very big issues. I know she pretty much deals with everything. It's the office of legal policy. um, you know, but but there you have it. I mean, at, at least they're thinking in the right direction, and they're creating this task force. Obviously, you know, she's not going to take a definitive stance on some of this stuff. Um, I know she she hasn't even read it, but it came down literally, um, just minutes ago, where this D.C. Federal Court of Appeals, which by the way is irrevocably liberal, it's the second most important court in the country, and it is it's just overrun for probably two generations by Obama appointees as well as Clinton appointees. And um, they ruled, I'm reading here from the Washington Times, the metro system can ban religious advertisements and other advocacy ads. A federal appeals court decided Tuesday, siding against the Archdiocese of Washington, who wanted to put up pro-Christmas signs on buses. Um, you know, here's here's the problem. If, if they were 100% consistent... As you well know, I'm not so into making religious liberty a sword, but a shield. I'm not interested in getting stuff from government. Oh, you have to have my advertisements. You know, I don't know if you could say you have an unalienable right to the government to give you access to every thing you want. You know what I mean? Um, what I don't want is government, state, or federal to criminalize Christianity, Christianity or Judaism or you know, to mandate, compel that you must violate your conscience. You know, th- this is a case. So, I mean, I'm not so terrified by the outcome. It's kind of like, um, you know, a friend of mine just pointed out to me. It's kind of like Walker v. Sons of Conf- of Confederate Veterans. That was the case in out of Texas a couple years ago at the Supreme Court, where um, a group of people wanted, you know, specialty license plates for co- the, you know, Confederate memorabilia. And they were denied. And, you know, I don't know. Do you have a right to that? You know, that's again, the problem is that they're inconsistent. I mean, people have shown me, um, you know, they show hijab wearing individuals on ads at the D.C. Metro uh, buses. But I'd be fine with that if we didn't have bake the darn cake. But but think about how incongruent this is. They have it backwards, as I mentioned, um, you know, on on air a minute ago with Beth Williams that. You know, a private entity should totally be able to do what they want. You know, as long as I'm not as I'm not breaking a law, um, I shouldn't have to violate my conscience. I shouldn't have to service anyone, and certainly any event that I disagree with. Um, but but a government 
you know, you could argue does have to kind of accommodate everyone. It's more of a neutral ground. Now, look, if you want to tell me, let, let's let's leave that alone and just keep it neutral, and there's good reasons government doesn't want controversy, fine. I don't know if you have an unalienable right to that, but it is completely backwards to say that a government-run agency could deny service, but a private entity can. I mean, that's completely backwards. Um, but anyway, I mean, look, I'm glad she at least recognized the problem with the lower courts that, you know, it's not just the Supreme Court. That, that's that's certainly a big problem. But, you know, we're losing this issue. We're losing this issue very rapidly. I know she didn't want to speak to the EEOC, but my point there is people regard that as the fourth branch of government. And basically, they could do what they want, and DOJ should have full control over them. Because even under this administration, they're, they're I mean, that ship has sailed. Um, they've already codified their stuff into law. Um, but but that that's the thing. I just don't – my main thing is don't criminalize me. You know, like I say, I say this all the time. As, as a practicing Jew, so there's two things about my religion. One is I can't service the homosexual agenda. And number two, I can't work on Saturday. I don't work on Saturday. Okay. So here's the dichotomy. I have the right to stay in motion, be neutral in my own property, and not be forced by government to violate my conscience and service anything I don't want to service. But at the same time, I don't have a religious liberty right to use it as a shield, as a sword. You know, the way the left is using their identity groups is somehow we become like a special class of people that, oh, you private employer, I have a right to seek employment at your place of work and demand that you accommodate me and hire me even though I can't work on Saturday and it's needed for that job. You know, if you choose to accommodate me, that's nice. But if not, I can't demand that. And that's why I want to be clear because what, what I'm a little bit concerned about is some of these efforts with religious liberty, they have it backwards. They want to create kind of a dependency special group, all this federal fund, equal federal funding for religious groups. I, I don't want anything from you. I don't want to write – I don't have a right to anything. See, what the EEOC and the government has been doing in, in, in the past is they replace equal unalienable negative inaction rights with identity classes. So if you're – the wrong religion in their eyes, you don't even have negative rights. But if you're the right religion, you have positive privileges. Namely, um, Christian bakers must bake a cake for a gay wedding with their own private property. But on the other hand, they actually sued and, and won to sue private trucking companies and airlines for you know firing Muslims for because they weren't you know in the case of the trucking case. This is in Illinois. Uh, not delivering beer, and the case of airlines not uh, serving alcohol, and you know that's not religious liberty. A, you don't have a right to employment in the private entity, and B, um, you know, I mean, <laughs> you, you can't say I'm not going to do the job. That's the job. I mean, think think about an airplane. Um, you know, it's a highly pressurized environment. You have a finite amount of employees. You have a handful of stewardesses of of, of flight attendants there. Um, you know, to say, oh, 
accommodate me, have someone else pin, pin, pitch in for uh, alcoholic beverages. I mean, that, that's a big deal. Um, you don't have a religious liberty right to that. Um, but, but this is what it is. We flip it on its head. It's kind of like, you know, I have a right to immigrate if I'm a Muslim and, and then you're not letting me in, but American citizens don't. Again, it's all rooted in property rights, property rights, conscience. You have the right to do what you want with your thing, but you don't have the right to shove it on other people. It gets back to Madison. Establishment clause is when you compel other people. Who's the one being compelled and who is seeking to compel? This is what the courts have backwards. And, you know, speaking of the courts, just to kind of move on. So right after we got off the air yesterday, a friend of mine in Tom Cotton's office emails me. Hey, you missed the case. Guess what? Judge Robart, remember him from Washington, Bush appointee. This is the guy who uh, who said there's a you know right to to immigrate. Put the nationwide injunction on uh, Trump's lawful immigration policies. So you know how we talked about the concept that. Even after the victory at the Supreme Court, and I kind of alluded to this on a religious liberty level with Beth Williams, you know, with Hobby Lobby and Masterpiece, you know, it doesn't mean anything, although Masterpiece was kind of BS to begin with, but they just come back for more and then they win in a thousand similar cases that aren't exactly the same. Here we have literally almost exactly the case happened again. So I noted on the show that with the case of temporary protected status and uh, asking for citizenship questions on the on the census, the courts now said you could challenge Trump's animus, even after the Supreme Court said you can't do that. So this is from Politico Pro. A federal judge on Friday, I must have missed this, refused to dismiss a pair of lawsuits over refugee processing related to President Trump's travel ban. The order issued by Seattle-based U.S. District Judge James Robart centers on the Trump administration's October decision to impose new security measures on refugee applicants from 11 nations. Not even a ban, just more vetting. The admin also announced at the time that it would pause the following to join program, which allows refugees to bring their spouses and children to the U.S. Robart in December issued a preliminary injunction that blocked the new restrictions for refugee applicants with family members in the U.S. The federal judge on Friday declined a DOJ request to dissolve the injunction um, and granted the plaintiff's motion for limited discovery. I um I didn't see their brief, but I'm assuming they brought up Trump v. Hawaii and the Supreme Court's ruling. Robart said that the administration had provided only minimal information about how it implemented the refugee suspensions before his injunction. Could, could, could you imagine this? They have to disclose. Trump has to disclose how he follows the law. The, the statute allows the president, for better or for worse, in the case of Obama, it was for the worse, to set the refugee cap. Meaning, aside from his ability under 1182F to determine who comes in, how they come in, under what circumstances— and the Supreme Court said, you know, he has full power to do that. He has separate authority to set the refugee caps. Now, remember, I noted at the time of the travel ban victory in the Supreme Court, how it was largely a hollow victory because the lower courts already won. Because one of the things is Trump modified it three times and he took out the refugee part. So, I mean, you might be asking, like, 
how could he defy the court? Well, technically, the we never got our day at the Supreme Court on the refugee component because he took it out and then he added in a, a separate refugee order a little bit later and it was never subject to this lawsuit. So you see what I'm saying? They always come back for more. And these same judges, as Clarence Thomas uh, warned, are going to come back for more. So there you have it. That was that. Then there was another wild case. If you remember, um, this insane judge, I'm forgetting, is it Alsup in the Central District of California? I'm forgetting who it was, but California judge is putting the climate on trial. Literally, we're having a national discussion, a legal case over the evidence of global warming where a bunch of youth, so to speak, have a class action lawsuit against President Trump for destroying their future by uh, not promoting the global warming agenda. I'm not kidding. And he had a full trial, gave standing. And this is really harmful. This is insane. I mean, imagine if we said, you know, and this would be much more direct, gave standing to all youth um, to, I don't know, sue the federal government, sue Congress for the debt. Right? Why not? Saddling our future with debt, mortgaging their future. Okay? Why can't they do that? Imagine a judge granting standing. Imagine a judge granting standing um, to conservatives to, to sue the homosexual agenda for destroying our culture. Okay? I mean, it, it's... You know, just putting broadly political questions in court. I mean, it's, it, it just boggles the mind. Boggles the mind. Um, I just, yeah, I don't know what to say. It just boggles the freaking mind. And this is what this is what it is. Just unbelievable. So, anyway. You know, this is another example of just run amok stuff. And and, and this guy is going to get ready to issue injunctions on on very broad economic policies. You know what I'm saying? This is not just something you could roll your eyes at. Right? This is a very big problem. And there's going to be a lot of harm done from this. So I want to – this is very interesting because I wrote an article explaining this phenomenon. It's very important that the administration issued an emergency um, motion to dismiss this case with Justice Anthony Kennedy. Um, Again, for those of you who are lawyers, this is obvious. For those of you who aren't, just let's just review. Um, The Supreme Court justices are assigned pursuant to statute. They're – assigned what's called circuit assignments, where each one has oversees a certain circuit um, where any litigation going on in those circuits, you know, you could appeal to that individual justice and he could issue a stay or an injunction on what the lower courts are doing. Um, you know, most commonly this occurs with stays of execution. They file emergency motions to to block an execution. And, you know, he could either put the injunction on himself or um refer to the to the court and they would vote and it takes four to take up the case. Now it's rarely done, but um you know, 
I noted that if the Supreme Court is really going to be supreme to the lower courts, there's a need for the justices to rein in these radical lower courts. So one of the points I made is that with Kennedy, Kennedy oversees the Ninth Circuit. And um, Clarence Thomas is the next senior. He's going to be the most senior justice after his retirement. Literally, might have even been today. I'm forgetting. Did, you know, he's he might even be gone. That might have been his last day. Um, but you know, statute basically gives the chief justice the prerogative to assign it, and he usually assigns them by seniority. So Thomas is the one who would get the um, Ninth Circuit unless he doesn't want it. And I was noting, hopefully Thomas will follow through with his concerns and liberally grant relief to these motions. So, so we don't have to keep going through the Ninth Circuit every, you know, and spend five years on this. So listen to this. He denies their um, application for stay. And he said that the government's request for relief is premature. He admits that, quote, the breadth of respondents' claims is striking. So he, he recognized on the one hand it's absurd, but then he goes on to say, however, the justiciability of those claims presents substantial grounds for difference of opinion. Oh, really? The district court should take those concerns into account in, ass- in assessing the burdens of discovery and trial as well as the desirability of a prompt ruling on the government's pending dispositive motions. <laughs> this is what we have in the courts. I mean, could you imagine if it was appealed to Anthony Kennedy, you know, again, my type of lawsuit, suing over the debt, suing over the homosexual agenda and destroying our culture. Do you think he'd say, well, you know, it's kind of striking this – Kind of unprecedented this type of lawsuit, but you know, let's uh, let's not jump the gun and we'll allow the lawsuit to go through. I'm not going to put a stay on it. Do you think for a minute he'd say that? So I'm just telling you. I mean, the courts are nuts, and everyone recognizes. It. I mean, you saw Beth Williams, you know, recognized it. You know what, what they're going to do about it, other than file their own lawsuits. I don't know, but you know. <laughs> It is what it is, you know. At least, um, you know, this was a positive development. And uh, you know, when you talk about religion, I just want to get back to that. It's just amazing watching this hearing on the border, and it's entirely about illegal aliens. Meaning, you know, if, if John F. Kennedy were around today, he'd say, "Ask not what you could do for illegal aliens; ask what you could do for the American people." Yet the entirety of the hearing is about concerns over the separation of families when the ICE, um, the guy from ICE testifying there made it very clear what we wrote about last week, that most of them, they're coming here willingly. They're coming here depositing their kids. They want to get their kids in with other family members, and then if they can't get in, they'll, they'll depart. They have no problem separating themselves, and then they, they've usually come in, tried to come in illegally many other times. Many of them have criminal records here, and then they're going to try to come in again. But in the meantime, they have no problem separating themselves. No concern over the drugs. No concern over, over, over the gangs and the criminal aliens. Nothing. It just, it just it bothers me. And you know you look at Chuck Grassley, the chairman, the Republican. I mean 
Think about it. You have pit bulls on that committee. You got Kamala Harris and, and White House and Leahy and Durbin and Schumer and Feinstein, the whole cast of characters on that committee. Cory Booker, you name it, they're on that committee. They're pounding the lectern, speaking to the morality. Feinstein talked about we need to follow our constitution and morality, aka of having open borders. And yet Grassley was also like peppering the ice guys on Oh, I hear from the New York Times says that uh, you're, there's sexual assaults in the facilities against women, just literally taking the Democrat oppo dump and, and echoing it, and then every second he calls them undocumented immigrants. I mean, this is what you got there. It's just, it's just so annoying. You know, and speaking of drugs, speaking of drugs, I'm going to flag for you an article I have out today proving incontrovertibly that the drug crisis is an illicit drugs, opioid and non-opioid, not just opioids, driven at the exact same time as these very UACs coming in in 2014 and the proliferation of sanctuary cities that once they're here – they're allowed to operate with impunity at these criminal alien drug um, uh, networks. And when they catch them, they don't turn them over to ICE. Maryland put out very comprehensive data from their Department of Health. Maryland's a, a top five state with the drug overdoses. And it is all an illicit drug crisis. Almost all of it is fentanyl and cocaine. Cocaine is not an opioid, if you noticed, and fentanyl is a synthetic opioid, but it's not prescribed. I mean, it's prescribed on a, for certain cancer patients, whatever, but it's not. There's no evidence it's being diverted, like oxycontin or whatever else. So that is what's doing it. There were a record 2,282 deaths in Maryland. Almost all of it was from illicit drugs, and the number of prescription deaths plummeted over the same period that the illicit drugs. Um, uh, skyrocketed because again they're being there's a severe shortage they're they're clamping down on prescriptions i have three charts in there that are worth a thousand words that say the whole story and yet it's lost on all these state and federal governments i would have liked if i had more time i would have liked to have um discussed with uh you know miss williams because i know she deals with the drug portfolio as well that you know, even DOJ, you know, Sessions is good on the illicit part of it, but you know, DEA is cutting off manufacturing of, of prescription drugs, raising the price of drugs, hurting patient pain patients, all for nothing. All the data is in there. All the talking points are in this article. I'm going to link to the three largest jurisdictions in Maryland are Baltimore City, Montgomery County, and Prince George's County. They are all sanctuary cities, sanctuary jurisdictions, where drug traffickers could operate with impunity. That's why the Washington Post has an entire expose on PG County and the MS-13 surge. And MS-13, we know, are the drug traffickers, drug distributors. There's your drug crisis there. Yet not a word, not a word in committee. Then finally... I just wanted to get to update you on this, the um, the budget fight or the budget fight that never was. 
I, you know, Trump was like, yeah, we need to, we need to deal with this. You know, um, he's, uh, he warned, I don't care what the political ramifications are. Our laws and border security have been complete disaster. Um, Democrats will not allow us to fix it without a government shutdown. Look, I hope John Cornyn is lying when he says that Trump agreed to punt till after the um, election. I mean, Trump then tweeted again, kind of saying the other way. I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, you know, conservatives need to get the story straight. You know, often when a member of Congress or a senator or the media will report on Trump doing something liberal, all of our guys will be like, fake news, fake news. Well, like, it's not always fake news. You gotta, I mean, get on Trump's case and make sure it, it remains fake. Make sure that he does the right thing. Don't wait until it's too late. We need to be building that case now. This issue will not be dealt with unless there's a budget fight. Nothing's gonna change after the election. If you believe that somehow, if he doesn't fight now, after caving five other times in the budget, that somehow in February of next year he's going to fight, I mean, you deserve the government you get. This is the number one issue. Because like I'm telling you, getting back to the courts, it's not even like, you know, it's like no runs, no hits, no errors. Okay, we won't get our stuff. The Democrats won't get their stuff. No, they're getting their stuff through the courts. We're going backwards unless we get our stuff in the budget, unless we go after the courts and this UAC invasion of the country and the family unit invasion of the country and the bogus asylum. Go after sanctuary cities. Kick the lower courts out of immigration. Unless that's done, his presidency is worthless. And notice I didn't even I didn't even mention the border wall, but that's you know that's obvious. Although I would argue that collectively those other factors are even more important. Because even if you have a border wall, um, you know, look, they'll, they'll they'll just go to the points of entry and abuse our sanctuary courts if we don't change our policies. It's a policy problem. So. Um, so that's the story. There's just a lot, a lot of stuff going on here, and um, just wanted to give you that update on the courts, on immigration, on religious liberty, and again, it all ties together. It's all understanding the social compact, understanding what real rights are, what fake rights are, understanding the purpose of government, and like you know, like like I've said many times, and I didn't press her on this because I just look. I know I'm not going to get an answer on this, but. You know, I do believe, as much as I believe states control all their internal affairs, there are a couple of areas you know I'm very strong with that there is indeed not just a role but a mandate for the federal government to come in. That's a civil rights legislation. The reason we have a federal government is when states are incapable or unwilling or downward right against liberty, they're there to protect liberty. If a state is violating unalienable rights, not doing like kind of like mean things, but I mean really going after property and conscience. That's where civil rights comes in, and that's where it's appropriate for the federal government to step in. I believe, I believe that when it comes to guns and um, and, and religious conscience, not, not, not a right to have equal access to advertisements or whatever and buses. Not that, but just 
civil rights legislation that no state could compel an individual with his own property to service something that violates his religion, period. That's what we need. And that would be very appropriate. Because that even a state government cannot infringe upon, and that's why we have a federal government. Immigration is another one. There are certain things um, that are very clear. Very, very clear. And um, look, we'll, we'll we'll see what happens. But you know, you should just know, um, Judge Timothy Farrar. He he was Daniel Webster's law partner. He wrote the first commentary on the Constitution after the Fourteenth Amendment was ratified. It was literally the next year. I think it was eighteen sixty eight. He published his treatise, and. Um, you know, he explained what the Fourth Amendment, Fourteenth Amendment, was doing against the states. You know, what it was, um, you know, which rights. And there's, there's often a debate: what's incorporated into the Bill of Rights that even states can't violate after the Fourteenth Amendment, what's not. And um, he wrote, "quote It's actually published in Boston, 1867, literally right as it was ratified. The states are recognized as governments, and when their own." Constitutions permit may do as they please, provided they do not interfere with the constitutional laws of the United States or with the civil or natural rights of the people recognized thereby and held in conformity to them. The right to so what's what's an example? The right of every person to life, liberty, and property to keep and bear arms, the writ of habeas corpus, trial by jury, um, and Divers or others, where is this, are recognized by and held under the Constitution of the United States and cannot be infringed by individuals or by even by the government itself. So I would argue that this is something we can enforce against the states. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is what it is. Unfortunately, there's no effort to do that. But, um, you know, never forget. Conscience is the most important thing. That's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking to create some sort of, um, you know, constituency, special class of people. All you know, we're religious Americans, like LGQC Americans, or you know, this ethnicity American. No, no, no. We just want what what is rightfully ours, our property and conscience rights. Um, but again, you know, when you talk about government um, services, it is interesting how you know they. They can't deny to anyone, but they could deny to religious people, and then uh, private groups can't, you know, use their own property and deny service to something that violates their conscience. So that's where we are. Let me let me know what your comments are, what your thoughts of this interview were, what you want me to ask in the future of guests like her or anyone else from you know DOJ or other departments and agencies in government. Um, you know, interviewing is not necessarily my uh, my my thing because I'm more of a commentator myself. I do interviews, but you know, it is what it is for now. So I I, I just I just wanted to get this all off my chest. There's so much going on here. Uh, I probably forgot a whole bunch of issues I wanted to get to, but we'll get to that later this week. Until then, thanks for listening. God bless y'all. This has been another episode of the Conservative Conscience. 